Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, book policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today, I, honest to God, thought we were going to be talking about hot back summer starting, patios opening, people out having fun. I, I don't know you guys, I had a really fun weekend. I saw some friends distant in a park, but still for the first time seeing friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And it just felt really good. Yeah, I, I had another family with their kids visiting my kids in the backyard. We were under 10. There were nine of us. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. It started to feel like normal again. My partner and I went on our first patio on Sunday and we said to ourselves, when was the last time we were on a patio together? And it was, we were in Mexico in January 2020. So it was a long time. Uh, really probably the, the best time for a, a vacation to Mexico, January 2020. Yeah, it was well-timed for sure. Well, instead of talking about all of that, thanks to the, the premier, we're going to be talking about how this government is invoking the notwithstanding clause in the charter to overrule a Ontario Superior Court decision in order to create more favorable campaign conditions for themselves in 2022. Just what the hell. But I actually think this is an interesting issue and it allows us an opportunity to not only talk about the notwithstanding clause, which is fucked up, but elections finance, how it works in Ontario, and maybe why this move is so unprecedented at this time. We're also going to talk about an anti-Black racism review that came out of the Ontario Public Service, a report finding systemic anti-Black racism in the OPS, which described discrimination and harassment faced by Black civil servants as persistent and unyielding. Yikes. But first, I want to take a moment at the top of the pod just to talk about the hate crime that took place in London last week that claimed the lives of Salman Afzal, Madiha Salman, Yumna Salman, and who is the son in the family, survived the attack and is on the road to recovery. But just such a tragedy. The killer has been charged with four counts of first degree murder, one account of one count of attempted murder and leaders of all political stripes have called for a conversation on Islamophobia, which I think we can all agree is probably long overdue. So yeah, I just wanted to create some space at the top of the pod to talk about, I think this happened like right after we all recorded last week and an unnecessary reminder of the violence and hatred that still exists in our culture. The tributes were touching. The speeches were long and full of solidarity and all the politicians said the right things, but I think, as I mentioned before, they've said the right things before. This isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the first time that Muslim Canadians have been targeted in a terror, domestic terrorist attack and have died in large numbers. We've said that we need to do stuff before and not enough has changed in Ontario. I know they're talking about making sure that there is a plan and that we review it every six months and that's great. but. You know, there's a, a deeper root of a problem here that I don't know that we're addressing. And, and it's unfortunate that we have to wait for tragedies to happen to revisit these things. But it needs to be one of those things that we constantly try to take head on and try to discover and notice before it gets to the point where, where lives are lost. Yeah. I agree totally. And I think lots of people, I think, eloquently pointed out that a 20-year-old doesn't run down a Muslim family without the anti-Muslim rhetoric fueled in large part by our politics, not just exclusively in Canada, but including in Canada over the last 
20 years of this guy's life, right? And some honest reckoning about that. I've seen some from some conservative politicians or former politicians, which I think surprised me a bit, was welcome. Obviously. But former, right, Sam? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I saw those. They were former politicians who ran with Harper when he had his like jihadi terrorist line to call in. And some of them had actual literature saying that they were going to fight Islamic terrorism. Do you know what I mean? Yep. But yeah. these are all former politicians. Yeah, yeah. Our current minister of education, I believe, uh, was the issues and comms manager of that campaign, let's point out. But I like not to make this all about conservative politicians. I just feel like that discourse was sometimes a bit muted. But I think we have to continue to reckon with that. And I think the feds have been too slow to move on online hate, a topic we've discussed before on this pod, which is written in fairness, not really in provincial jurisdiction. But and obviously, we don't know much about the conditions that, that led to this exact um, incident, but you can't imagine that online environments didn't play a radicalizing role. I mean, I'm speculating, but it feels like a safe speculation. The feds have been promising that that legislation to try to regulate big tech and online hate has been coming for weeks now for many months. So maybe this will play a catalyzing role. And we've allowed tragedies like this to come and go before with relatively little concrete action. Apparently, he didn't have much of a social media presence, according to the police, and they've been trying to dig into it. They did say he was homeschooled for most of his life, I'm sure, or maybe not. I don't know. Something that might have something to do with what kind of access to uh, content he's getting. But yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying here. Yeah. My only thought on this is that Aaron O'Toole, Doug Ford, both went, I think, said the right things, but you know, st- still continue to employ... Nick Kuvalis, who ran the Kelly Leach leadership campaign, which traded in Islamophobia. The dude has many tweets behind him. I mean, if you, you can't saying the right thing in this moment, and then in, when not even that long ago, this was a, a strategy and you are continuing to employ and promote the architects of that strategy. Yeah, it just, it rings hollow. And perhaps why both of those figures got booed at the, when they showed up. So uh, maybe we'll move us on to the biggest story of the week. MPPs were called to the House over the weekend to vote on the Protecting Elections and Defending Democracy Act, which reenacts several portions of the Election Finances Act that were struck down by the Ontario Superior Court earlier this month. Why did this happen? Well, despite the fact that the Superior Court found that certain portions of the Election Finances Act violated Section 2B of the Charter, which governs freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, the Charter also has a Section 33, which gives provincial legislatures the ability to declare that laws can continue to operate notwithstanding big chunks of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, particularly freedom of expression. A Final vote is expected uh, today, the day that we're recording, so we should know by the time we're listening to this pod. And Ford has a majority government. The bill is expected to pass. I've seen a few folks noting that Ford is the first premier to invoke the, uh, the notwithstanding clause. That is only true in the Ontario capacity. Other provinces have used the notwithstanding clause before. Francois Legault over Bill 96, which aims to strengthen the dominance of French language in Quebec, uh, which is a whole other weird thing. It was used in 2017 by Brad Wald and Saskatchewan to overturn a ruling to prohibit funding to Catholic schools. Ford himself has already threatened to use it when a court ruled that his meddling in Toronto elections was unconstitutional, although... Later on, that ruling was reversed, so he didn't have to use it. So 
Anyway, he is the first Ontario Premier to do it. It is certainly unprecedented here. So let's just dive right in. This thing is going to happen, but what do we think the implications are? And for folks listening, what should people be doing about it? What should folks be thinking? And is there anything we can do? I mean, it's so crazy that they would do this. I guess I want to start with maybe the substance of the thing, which is pre-election limits on spending on political advertising by businesses, unions, organizations. I don't think it's bad public policy. As you say, the liberals introduced a six-month limit at $600,000 for that six-month period, which that sounds like a lot of money, but when you think about advertising, like it's $3,000 a day or, or so, which like if you're buying real ads in terms of like radio, television, et cetera, is not that. And then what Ford has done is taken that same limit and now applied it to a whole year. So now you're down to whatever, $1,500, $1,600 a day. And the judge, I read the ruling in full because I was interested it basically came down to the Oaks test, which is the so section one of the charter allows you to limit freedom of of all freedoms and freedom, including freedom of expression, if it can be justified in a fair and democratic society. And there's this test that some guy named Oaks came up with uh, that is a four part test, and it basically failed on the third part, which is minimal impairment. That if a government is going to do it, it, has to minimally impair your freedom. And basically, it it came down to the fact that the government couldn't come up with experts that could justify why 12 months versus six months was necessary. Basically, the the experts they produced were in favor of the six month. And then he said, well, but if you're in favor of the six months and not the 12 months, like how is it minimally impairing justify this length of time? This is all pretty nuanced shit, right? Like you, they could absolutely win on appeal. And I'm, I'm sure the government will appeal, but this is not a slam dunk, right? And so just rather than do the responsible thing and work it through the appeals w- with the knowledge that, that would mean that all the groups could run ads in the meantime, right? They decide to use this sledgehammer that, again, to your point, no Ontario uh, government has ever used before other than him, again, on an election issue. I think it's a really bad precedent. It basically emboldens any political party in the future to write election laws the way that they see fit regardless of the charter i think it's dangerous for our democracy for that to become normalized and that's not a conservative talking attack i'm just like just in general so do i care that the limits are six months versus 12 months no not particularly but i think this is now a pattern right they threatened to use the notwithstanding again now they've done it and i think the points that have been made that like they're recalled the legislature and are going to use all their time and energy for the next few days to do this as opposed to a safe plan for back to school, the long-term care plan, indigenous first nations inquiry. There's so many more pressing things than this. uh, And they're doing it because they don't want the teachers unions to run ads against them basically. And I I just think, I think this is way too in the weeds. I really don't think this is going to cut through the discourse to most Ontarians, but for those that does, I hope it sees just how self-serving this government is. And and note that we are within that 12-month period right now, right? Yeah. So it has an immediate impact of what can and can't be run against them. And they know that, which is why they're doing that. And I think the biggest challenge with this, and I had this argument with Brian Lilly on Twitter, is that it doesn't pass the smell test. We're not saying that the notwithstanding clause isn't a clause that provincial government should consider using when appropriate. But what you're talking about is sort of the tampering of elections and democracy and what 
who gets to say what during an election period that you want to now define. And they're willing to do that in every instance that they feel like it's going to be beneficial for them. And that's what doesn't pass the smell test with this entire endeavor. It's that the government is going to put at the forefront their own success at the election box ahead of everything else. And they've demonstrated that with how they're doing this and the fact that they're doing it at all. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting on the substance piece of it here, because I read the ruling too, Sam, and I really think that it's it seems like they kind of lost on a technicality. Like one wonders what the judge would have said if he if they had doubled the, the limit to $1.2 million and 12 months. So it was the same. And the judge actually made several disagreements with the union position on this. Like the unions were saying that, and to be totally clear, the pr- prior to the win, the concept of a pre-election period of six months with a spending limit that was introduced in 2017 by the Wynn government, unless you were in the writ period, anyone could spend any amount of money as long as you weren't like actually like a registered political party. So it was, it's kind, it was kind of nuts. It was like Ontario politics had this sort of like big money loophole that unions used for sure. And Working Families Coalition certainly has helped liberal governments get elected. But the conservatives also have like tons of big business interests out there. And it was really only on this six to 12 month thing that they lost it on. And I just like to use the notwithstanding clause, which is basically saying to everyone in Ontario, you do not have you do not have rights on this particular issue on the substance. This is actually one where I think when I actually read through, I don't agree with where the judge landed, but none of none of it fucking matters now because the reaction to it is so over the top that like I think like it's the kind of thing that people should be in the streets over. And sadly, I I think because we're all in the streets having fun and seeing our friends, we're not like, we're not organizing over this. And it's such a dangerous precedent. One thing I would like to ask is that, so I've seen the government come over saying that this government, various ministers and stuff saying that this is their attempt to defend Ontario from the influence of US style super PACs. I think they actually think that they're right on the policy here. Like we are trying to defend a pre-writ period. We are trying to defend spending limits and elections. And I think that's something that if you were to just ask people about, I think you find a lot of people agreeing with that on a policy principle. If you're a progressive trying to articulate in a simple way why this is fucked up, what's, what, what do you go to? I think it's that the judge did not say that they couldn't come back with a new bill that was tighter and impaired people's freedoms less. Like the judge said that would be welcome. And so put forward a policy and then let's debate that policy and see if it stands up to the charter, but they don't want to do that. And so I think that's the defense. It's not that we don't, that you don't agree that spending limits in the pre-election period are fine policy, but it's just, it's an over-the-top reaction. And it's really not like when you read this notwithstanding clause and the history of the notwithstanding clause, this is surely not what was intended, right? Like the fact that it was meant to expire after five years, the use of this, these things, like it was meant to, uh, for moments in time where majority rule was to be more important than the protection of a particular freedom or right. And I don't, I just don't think that the authors of that ever imagined it being used to write the rules of elections, do you know what I'm trying to say? And for that to be the two times that they've used it is worrisome. Yeah, I, I, I also think it's lazy, right? Like 
it's lazy and self-serving. They didn't do their homework properly. And instead of going through the judicial process that they should go through in the appropriate way, they're just like, yeah, forget it. I'll just use my get out of jail free card and blow the whole damn thing up to hell with the consequences. I'll just revisit this in five years when, after I get elected, right? Like it's all about the immediacy of winning the next election for people that they want to win, whether it's city council or the provincial legislature. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, I think like, it's also helpful, I think to point to the other uses of the notwithstanding clause that have been like, cause it's not a great club that you're in. I was reading a little bit about, and I'm not an expert at all, uh, but like what Francois Legault wants to do with Bill 96 in Quebec. And it's basically all about ensuring that like the dominance of the French language over other languages in Quebec, that you can be fined, penalized, like for using other languages in specific contexts. Like it's a very nationalist objective there. You can agree with a policy, and disagree with a means to a policy. Like, I think the best analogy is I agree that when Doug Ford announced the reimposition of carding in Ontario to curb COVID-19, I agree we needed to do more stuff for COVID-19. Is carding the right option? Like, absolutely fucking not. So I'm wondering trying, for folks who are trying to communicate the importance of this to friends and family, if like that might be a better uh, analogy because I must admit like it was it feels like a celebration in Ontario right now and this is the kind of thing that like if this were the only thing in the news cycle and if we weren't at this particular moment in time would we see more of an outrage over it and my last thing I'll say on this is like hats off to the MPPs who spent their first vac summer weekend reopening weekend in the legislature holding the government's feet to the fire on this. Well, so, you know, I'll move, move us on from maybe our, our, our kind of sort of banana republic to the matter of quite a troubling report that came out on the on racism in the Ontario Public Service. Ontario's outgoing Secretary of Cabinet, Stephen Davidson, took the rare step of in, issuing an apology to employees last week for systemic anti-Black racism in the Ontario Public Service in an all-employee email that was signed by all of the deputy ministers. According to CBC, the report, which was conducted after a two-year review process that interviewed 215 Black employees and held surveys and focus groups, found that white managers and co-workers often faced no consequences for bad behavior when it came to anti-Black discrimination and harassment. Um, this just a few of the things that were cited as specific examples of the report were sort of secret meetings that excluded black managers. There was one instance of black correction staff being locked in a secured area by colleagues, which is like very fucked up, but more regularly. And I think we see this in a lot of office settings in the modern era being passed over for lesser qualified candidates in hiring competitions, uh, spending more time than their white counterparts in temporary and contract roles, denial of privileges like compressed work weeks, work weeks or work from home arrangements. I guess this would have been in a pre-pandemic era and difficulty getting full-time hours if you're being paid on an hourly basis. Black managers reported that white subordinates regularly undermined them or would go above their head to a white director. And they did a little bit of analysis of complaints, apparently, and only 12% of complaints submitted on discrimination and harassment resulted in any accountability to the perpetrators. So, I just wanted to reflect on this because this is a place where, where, where we work. Two of the hosts on this podcast, Groom is Not Here, have worked in it as a person of color. Like, how did this news hit you? Did it? What do we think? I mean, I think it shows you that it's anti-black racism is not limited to 
people outside of government, right? This is um, a systemic issue that is prevalent everywhere. And even the even the government that purports to be the beacon of what needs to be appropriate and how to treat people is also guilty of, of this. I, I mean, I'm just disappointed and sad that it's an issue and that it hasn't gotten that much better. But I guess it's positive that they went through the process and that we're shining a light on it now. And that the employees were willing to talk about it and, and interview about it and sort of express their frustration about it. I'd like to see real concrete actions taken from this. And we're going to have a new Secretary of Cabinet coming in soon. And so I would like this, I'd like the Public Service in Ontario to basically publicly acknowledge these challenges and talk about how they want to address that and create the you know positive workspace environment that they all claim they they have and try to enforce in other places around the province yeah i mean that's really well put i don't think i have tons to add i do think it's another reminder i think of how the conversation has evolved in the last year or two in a positive way but also in a way that as individuals and institutions reckoning with their pasts and and current realities and so i don't think we would have had this report even three years ago necessarily it framed in this way and george floyd and the blm like events of last summer i think changed hearts and minds in a lot of ways so i think i even look uh, this is really random but the kathleen Wynn campaign team picture was i saw somewhere on social media on the weekend because i think it was like the what year anniversary of winning back the majority i guess three years seven three, no, three years ago we were all extremely tired no no it was the 2014 campaign anniversary which i guess was like six six years i guess anyway, yeah. i mean it was the seven year anniversary seven. of kathleen winning a majority government right right and it was like a completely white campaign team with a few exceptions and i thought to myself it's not as if this is like some distant past right like i but whereas a campaign team in 2021 i just do not think would look like that yeah and so anyway this isn't the most eloquent thought but uh, to alvin's point i think it's i think it's good but you know that we'll see what comes out of it one, one yeah. of the things i want to touch on though chris is that the ops has a very i don't know what to call it but there's a culture of restricting people's expression of their personal beliefs and advocacy for certain issues and causes Black Lives Matter, advocating for indigenous rights, like all those things that w that are related to this and fighting systemic racism and anti-black racism and, and everything else that is trying to be a part of society right now, that I feel is also a bit stifled because of the expectation that public servants are agnostic to those things, right? If you are a black leader or a person of color who is leading a public service unit, that is your identity and you should be free and willing and comfortable with expressing your views of how that affects you as a person of color. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's one of the things that perhaps goes too far because you're like, oh, you should be neutral in all things, but not everything is like that when that's how you identify, right? And it's a part of you and you need to be able to continue to fight for that and feel that your employer is welcoming that as well. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, Alvin, because I was reflecting on my time in the Ontario Public Service, which, of course, as a white male, I did not encounter discrimination nor harassment. But, you know, I think it is it, it 
a culture that I, I think, yes, very structured and very cautious about things that could be linked to a political movement. And I think that it is a place where to advance, it is often about gaining the trust of your superiors, of your managers and then directors. And then those directors become ADMs and those ADMs become deputies. And you see people advance by following particular people up through the organization. And that's really the advancement model that I saw when I was there. And I wonder if that is the model, there's not a lot of check on how say discrimination might be manifesting itself in hiring processes. And the other thing too, is I, I think it's also an organization that is very large, but also I think probably considers itself quite cosmopolitan, but particularly the core of the OPS, which exists, OPS, which is in downtown Toronto. And I find often in spaces like that, there is, I think, an assumption that yes, we are all progressive. We are all, we although we keep it sort of buttoned down because we're civil servants, we all want at least believe in a role in government in people's lives. So that makes us progressive somehow. But I, I certainly didn't see a lot of open discussion of this kind of thing there. And I think that often, if you're a group of people who consider yourselves cosmopolitan, progressive, self-questioning sometimes doesn't seem like as much of a priority. So I would, I, it's it, a really troubling report, one that I hope will made me reflect on my time there and one that I hope causes a lot more reflection. All right. Well, before we go, I have a couple things on the rapid fire today. The first thing, my favorite to tweet thread that I saw, Maxine Bernier speaking. I believe he was arrested this weekend on his Mad Max tour by the RCMP. Any, did you, did you guys see this? The Yeah, Mad, Mad Max mounted by <laughs> the RCMP in, in, in Manitoba. I don't know how many M's you can put in there, but I mean, yeah, great. <laughs> It's he's ridiculous and he's going out there and I, I'm more concerned around the fact that he's always been like this and people didn't know it and that he was very close with 49 point something percent of the conservative membership voting for him to be the leader of the party to being next in line to becoming the next prime minister. That's how close we were to having somebody like this. Yeah. Sam? I have no thoughts. He's a dick. <laughs> yeah, there's that. And I mean, he was a cabinet minister at one point, too. I always think about every single time I see his name in the news when uh, there was this scandal about him leaving like national security documents at his like biker girlfriend's house who had like connections with the Hells Angels. And like that was Max. That was the Maxine Bernier that I, I grew up with. Now he's mini Trump. But yeah, fun to see him loaded in the back of a van. We also had Minister of Foreign Affairs, right? Like he went out around the world representing Canada. And these were his deeply held views. We also had a uh, new Brunswick, Jenica Atwin, crossing the floor to the Liberals last week. I just thought it would be a good moment to reflect on floor crossings. They are always sort of dramatic when they happen. But she released a statement just like one minute ago denouncing her comments about Israel-Palestine, uh, which was getting them into some trouble over the weekend. But to answer your question more specifically, I don't feel that strongly about floor crossings when they don't disrupt the composite like not composition of the legislature but who's in power like floor crossings that somehow change the dynamic of what people voted for i think should be like more substantively weighted but ones that that don't i, I don't feel like like i don't care that much and the last time that happened was belinda stronic right and she crossed and that 
gave the governing uh, Martin government the one vote they needed to survive before the next election. But specifically on the Green MP, though, she's like why she left and that sort of unraveling of the federal Green Party and enemy Paul's leadership and her leadership team and what they were publicly saying is just crazy. Right. I mean, talk about a lack of message control, but they are all over the place on this right now. And the conversation about Israeli apartheid and free Palestine, like it's getting out of hand for a fifth party that was supposed to be focusing on the environment. I know that's one of the reasons that she left. But at the same time, like it was she was she's going to face similar issues in the Liberal Party of Canada as well. So. I mean, there's more room for discourse, I'm sure, but I saw a lot of fellow liberals who are also concerned about certain positions being taken. Not that I disagree with them, but, you know, just flag raising all over the place. And Annemie Paul is the first Jewish leader of a major party in Canada, I think, right? Which is interesting dynamic, too. Yeah. My only other thought about floor crossings is every single time they happen and maybe just remembering like ridiculous conservative cabinet moments of the past is a theme for me today because... Do you guys remember after the Belinda Stronic floor crossing that like CBC, it was like a photo shoot and like a news bit with like Peter McKay. He like, yeah, it's the dog. he literally flew on a government aircraft to get home to play with his neighbor's dog so that he could look sad. Yeah. Yeah. At least like digging. And then the reporters dutifully ask him how he's doing. And he's like, well, just sometimes people show you who they really are. And you're just like, Every single time somebody's like, wouldn't it be great if Peter McKay were the leader of the Conservative Party? And I, I'm just because he's like a red Tory doesn't mean that he's a smart man. But I, anyway, just one of my favorite moments in Canadian political history. Destreamed uh, grade nine math curriculum was released by Minister Lecce this week. And Sam, this is something that you've done quite a bit of work with the folks who are actually like pushing that change. So maybe worth more of a discussion than a rapid fire, but anything to say about it right now? Uh, yeah, fair enough. Maybe we should dig into it. Uh, I'm, I was quite pleased, that, as Chris says, I'm involved in the advocacy around this issue, that splitting of students into academic and applied streams starting in grade nine. It, Ontario is the only province that does it that early. It has huge equity implications, speaking of the anti-Black racism earlier, but also Indigenous and by income and special needs and, and whatnot. And so a lot of advocacy going back many years to to end this practice, at least in grade nine, um, and one step forward. So kudos, kudos to the government on that. Not quite enough supports to make it a success, and only two weeks left in the school year to to get ready for it. So some room for improvement, but but overall uh, a positive step forward. Absolutely. Also, I just note for listeners that I wanted to mention is that, of course, if you live in uh, Toronto, Halton, Peel, York, and Waterloo. Is it Waterloo? Tim- and Timmins, I think. And Timmins. You are eligible as of today to book on the provincial portal. Uh, you're an accelerated second dose. I got mine this morning, although I tried helping my dad, and he, there were like lots of technical issues with his booking. So it hasn't been perfect. But uh, I don't know. Do you guys have your? Do you guys get your second bookings yet? I am already fully vaxxed. I got it last week. Um, on the ball. I tried through the superior. Peel portal. They said I still wasn't eligible. So I don't know. This is what happened to my dad. And it's weird. I mean, this weird thing. My dad is a, he's like in his like late sixties. I would, I wish I could give him the appointment that I got. I would much rather he get it. And then I get mine later, but 
yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Some kind of mistake, but worth trying. I'm sure they will fix whatever issues came out today. And I really looking like we are going to be uh, back to normal sooner rather than later, which is which is good. And I think, yeah, next week it's opening up to everyone who book, who got their first back before May 9th. So um, well, and the, Moderna, the Moderna shipments are now confirmed to come before Canada Day. So we basically have enough now supply to fully vaccinate 65 to 70 percent of ontarians by canada day now whether we'll get shots in arms that quickly is like a different thing because now it really needs to ramp up but yes all to the good the supply is really no longer a big concern thinking back to a certain premier who tried making this all about supply and how wrong that was all right all right friends i think that's it for this week we will we will see you next week and i will put the outro in here You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about public policy and politics in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and Ontario Loud is myself, Sam Andrew, Alvin Tejo, and Grima Tawakur. We have amazing volunteers who support us, and we have amazing Patreon supporters who send us small amounts of money every month on Patreon. You go to patreon.ca slash Ontario Loud, and you can support us for anywhere from two to five to ten bucks a month or more, and it goes a long way. It helps us host, it helps us record, it helps us renew our equipment, which in the fancy high-flying world of podcasting helps us make a better-looking product ultimately for you. I want to acknowledge that Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. I want to, particularly in light of uh, where we're at in this particular moment in our journey where we're grappling with some really painful truths, in reference to take moments to recognize that a land acknowledgement isn't really enough. We all need to be doing more, and certainly on this podcast, we want to do everything we can to support those who are raising a lot of hell about colonization and the injustices that came with settling this country. We will be back next week with another episode and then mailbag. So uh, if you have a question for us, get at us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and that'll be us for the season. We're going to take us a little bit of a break after that, but uh, a little bit more pod coming your way before we stop. So have a great week, everyone.